We'll be in Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 1 today. Years ago, I worked at a construction company that had this annual semi-formal Christmas party. It's kind of that time of year with the parties happening and gatherings. And I was always amazed at the transformation from jeans, boots, and hard hats to suits and uh, slacks. And, and it seemed like people not only cleaned up a bit, uh, externally, but their language cleaned up too, because all everyone, all the spouses were around, and everyone's on their best behavior. It was kind of like you know someone who you've only seen with a beard, and then they shave that beard, and it's like whoa, quite a shock. It was that shocking. Who are these guys? Uh, and really, when you think about man-made religion, it's very much like a dress code. It's something that you put on. It's something external. It's something that squeezes you into a mold uncomfortably at times, and yet it's uh, it's all this external focus and fitting in and pleasing people, and that's how the gospel is so different, because what God does is he changes us and transforms us on the inside. It's not conforming to an ethos or acknowledging a belief system or what you do and what you don't do. You're a new creation in Jesus. And now it's Jesus' life in you. We sang that song, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God's with us, who can stand against us? But really, God is in us and lives in us. So that's that just transcends any sort of external uh, behavioral changes or mental thinking. It, it's transcendent. It's amazing what our God does. And we can sit, we can spend our Christian lives far removed from that plane of walking in faith and relying upon the grace of God for Jesus' life to be lived in us. We can lean on our own understanding. We can start comparing ourselves with ourselves, which is not wise. We can walk by sight and not by faith. So we can have the doctrine. We can believe truth. But are we walking in the grace of God? Are we allowing Christ to live his life in us? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, that it is powerful, it's sharp, it cuts to the heart of the matter. And Lord, we pray that you would just bring us to a place of humility before you, that we are desperate for a move of your spirit in our lives, that we want to hear what you have to say. And we just pray that you would you would minister your word to our hearts this morning, that you would show us if there's areas where we uh, have sought man's approval rather than trusting in you believing what you've said. And I pray, Lord, you would bring encouragement through your word that there is hope for us in Jesus. There is a a life that you have for us that's abundant and supernatural and wonderful and fruitful. And I pray that we would not stop short of that uh, fulfillment in our lives. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to this earth. Thank you for being our Savior. And thank you for sending the Spirit who fills us and guides us into all truth. We just pray your will be done, Lord, in this place and in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Have you, in following Jesus, have you discovered that that rest that he promises seems evasive? It seems elusive. We don't really 
we're not always enjoying that rest. It's, it's a bit foreign to our experience. And is it possible that the burdens we're carrying and the yoke that we're weighed down with, it hasn't been placed on you by Jesus. It's been placed on you by others, well-intentioned, and maybe even yourself. That you're putting yourself under a burden that Jesus has not put you under. It is true that our walk with Christ, it involves being intentional in trusting him, in following him. Discipline. There is work involved, right? Putting on that yoke. It was to pull a plow. That was work. But Jesus is the one who supplies the strength to do his will. If we believe that Jesus has died for our sins and rose again, shouldn't we believe that he's able to help us, able to empower us to do his will today? It's so liberating to know that we don't have to conform to what other people think, but to have Christ living in us. Last week we began this study in Galatians. Paul addressed his concern straight away about people departing from the gospel. The evil of uh, this false gospel, legalism, had entered in, where it's not just Jesus dying on the cross and rising again and our belief in him that saves us, but we have to also keep the law. And so they said, you have to be circumcised. You have to keep the law of Moses. So it's fine believing in Jesus, but you must also do these things to be saved. And that undermines the gospel completely, where it becomes based upon what we do. And so Paul says, salvation comes by grace through faith. It's just through faith in Jesus that we're saved, not by works that we've done. So Paul defended his apostleship. He said, I'm not a fake. I'm not a phony. I am. I, ha- I have been called as an apostle. I received a revelation from Jesus Christ. And I have, through believing in Christ, my life has been completely transformed. And in this uh, chapter, Paul explains how the true gospel was confirmed by the apostles in Jerusalem and how sinners are justified by faith in Jesus alone. So starting in verse 1, Galatians chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Three years after Paul's conversion, it says that he had spent time um, away from Jerusalem, but he returned for 15 days, a friendly visit with Peter, and a, and a James for a, a brief meeting. He had gone into these Gentile areas and been sharing the gospel. People are coming to faith. And after 14 years, he goes back to Jerusalem uh, with Barnabas and took Titus with him. It likely The timing of it likely coincides with Acts chapter 15, where there was a false teaching concerning circumcision that you must be circumcised to be saved. Titus was an uncircumcised Gentile. He was a believer who traveled with Paul. The, 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 le- the book of Titus is a letter that Paul wrote addressed to him after his imprisonment. So he hasn't written that letter yet, but this is that Titus, uh, who was a pastor, and he had the ministry of uh, pastoring the churches in Crete. Paul and Barnabas, they were not summoned to Jerusalem. He says they went up by revelation. So God guided them. Bringing Titus was kind of like, it, the, what occurred to me was 
You know, when the Israelites, the Hebrews, went in to spy out the land of Canaan, and they had 40 days where there was a man from each tribe that went in. Twelve men went in. They were in for 40 days, and they brought back of the fruit of the land. And there's that classic, you see it in Israel all the time, the little carving of the guys with the large cluster of grapes hanging. The Bible describes that. And it's a similar thing where Paul had gone into the Gentile world and he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's the fruit of his ministry. Titus, this uncircumcised Christian who's a Gentile, who's full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And he's saying, you know, here's evidence of the ministry. And he comes back to Jerusalem with Titus in tow. That the gospel that Paul's been preaching, it's effectively changing lives. And here's evidence of it right before you that you can talk to. It's not just something you taste and go, oh, it's pretty good. Those are nice grapes. No, this is the genuine article. So upon arriving in Jerusalem, it said Paul privately communicated the gospel. He's like, all right, here's the doctrine. And he lays it out privately. He's not wanting to cause a stir. He's not wanting to bring a scandal upon the church. He's saying, I want to make sure that I'm not preaching the gospel in vain. I want to make sure that I'm preaching the truth. The whole truth. I'm not holding anything back. Because a false gospel would be vain. It would be useless. It would be powerless to save. It is possible for sincere believers to err in doctrine. We see this in Acts 18. Apollos, he's an eloquent speaker. It says he was mighty in the scriptures. This is a guy that knew the Bible so well. And at one point in his useful ministry, he's preaching in the synagogue. And and Aquila and Priscilla, they're hearing what he's preaching, and he only knew the baptism of John. And this is after Jesus has died, rose from the dead, ascended up to heaven, and he's still preaching John's baptism. So it says they pulled him aside privately and explained the way more perfectly. So what he was saying wasn't wrong in itself, but it was incomplete. He was pointing to the shadow when Jesus was the substance, that was to make the way for, to prepare the way for Jesus to come. Jesus had come. So there was more to the story. And Apollos, it says, he received that. He taught it. He had been preaching, missing the main point. But they pulled him aside and said, hey man, Jesus has come. He's fulfilled that. We should still preach repentance. But Jesus is the fulfillment of what you're preaching. Paul, he was confident in the revelation he received from God but he humbly submitted his position and this doctrine that he was teaching to the apostles in Jerusalem. He didn't want to run his race in vain. I don't want to keep going along this track if it's the wrong track. Verse 3, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. After having this meeting in Jerusalem, it was confirmed. You're preaching the whole gospel. This is the truth. And Titus did not need to be circumcised to be saved. And so Paul says, hey, if if that was a, a, a necessary part of the gospel to return to law, then they would have had Titus circumcised. But no, he was not. And he said this controversy was caused by false brothers 
mentioned in Acts 15.1, who said, unless you're circumcised, unless you follow the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. They had infiltrated the church as false teachers, and they taught this false gospel based upon man's works. They viewed liberty in Christ, that Paul called it, an excuse to sin. And they sought to bring people under bondage, to make them conform to the law. It's not a sign of spiritual maturity to be circumcised or to remain uncircumcised, but faith in response to God's word and the leading of the Spirit. We see this in the life of Timothy. Now, Titus, he was a Gentile, was not circumcised. Timothy, his dad was a Greek, and because he was ministering to Jews, he didn't want to close that door. So he was circumcised, though a Greek, so that he wouldn't have this this blockage in the way. He could keep the law and therefore bring the gospel to people under law. It's not a matter of keeping the law for salvation, but liberty to be circumcised or not to be circumcised for the glory of God, for the benefit of others. Thinking about other people and where they're at. Uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 31 through 33, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Paul wanted people to come to Christ, to trust in him. And if there was a, if it was the keeping of the feast that he could continue to do, which gave him an opportunity to minister the gospel, he'd keep the feast. It wasn't about salvation. It wasn't about him pleasing God by keeping the feast or not keeping the feast. Paul was well acquainted with the law and with legalism. It's like he could smell that a mile away. He's like, oh boy, here we go. I, I know this one. Uh, and he says, we didn't give an inch to those false teachers, not even for an hour. We did not humor them. We said, no way, this is off. Uh, and he continued to preach salvation is through faith in Jesus alone. It's not earned. And this potential that the gospel could be preached in vain or twisted and distorted and therefore not be the gospel. Peter warned about this in 2 Peter 2.1. Now, hear how he, he speaks in the past tense, but now in the present. He says, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. That's in 2 Peter 2, verse 1. It would be a tragedy, right, to think you have the truth and you... You are saved because of the faith you've placed in Christ. Um, but being led astray from Jesus, all the while thinking you're more spiritual for it. Because now you've placed uh, your salvation, your, your faith and salvation on what you do. That it's by something you do that you're saved. A lot of what looks like devotion to us is all in vain when it's not with a heart that's trusting and believing in Jesus Christ, and it's looking to yourself or to approval from others. And it's very easy for that to be what motivates us. Jesus said in Matthew 15, verse 7 through 9, hypocrites, while he was, he was speaking, just background, he was speaking to Pharisees who were teaching the traditions of men as the teachings of God. 
What hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So all the stuff the Pharisees did, it was vain, because they hadn't put their faith in Jesus Christ. They were trusting in their own works to save them. Back to Galatians chapter 2, verse 6. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. Paul's privately discussing the gospel with those leaders in Jerusalem, and they had nothing to add to his message. There was no alteration necessary. And Paul, I like how he says, he's like, you know what? The people that were there, they seem to be pillars. They're important people. He's not name dropping. He's not uh, saying, you know, this person vouches for me. Talk to him, him. You respect these people, so respect me. That's not the way he puts it. He says, God shows no partiality. Instead of criticizing Paul or saying, you know, you're spiritually unfit, uh, your doctrine's off, the, the opposite was true. It says they extended the right hand of fellowship. And they said, as we've gone to the Jews, you go to the Gentiles. They recognized that God, that the Lord's work was being done by him. And they uh, endorsed the message and his ministry to the Gentiles. And it was the same gospel. It wasn't a gospel to the Jews and a gospel to the Gentiles. It was the exact same gospel that was needed by all people that we would repent and trust in Jesus. The only issue they said or the only thing they they uh, emphasized was make sure you take care of the poor. And he says, that's the very thing that I want to do. Remember, he was one who, when he heard of poor people in Jerusalem, went throughout the Gentile churches and said, let's take up a collection and bless them because they're having a hard time. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, we'll love to. So he was already doing this sort of thing. He says, that, that was right in line with where my heart was. So there was total agreement among us. I like, too, that though Peter was called to the Jews and Paul to the Gentiles, they didn't limit their scope of ministry because we see them teaching and sharing the gospel with others. Remember, Peter, he gets that vision from God in Joppa, and he goes to Cornelius, the centurion, who's a Gentile, and he's addressing his house. And as he does, the Holy Spirit comes upon them all. Also, Paul, what was his custom when he went into any city? He would go to the synagogues, and he would talk to the Jews first. So though they were, they didn't say, well, you know, I, I'm pretty much, I have this little cubby where I operate. This is my area of expertise, talking to this kind of person or a person with this background. No, they were very free. But overarching the place of their ministry, one was to Gentiles and the other to Jews. There's no formula to sharing the gospel, but the approach to sharing the gospel to a Jew or a Gentile would be very different. I mean, think about someone who has been raised believing in God 
and has the word of God and has a concept of right and wrong and the power of God as our judge. Compared to someone who's been raised in a pagan society who grew up worshiping relics and idols and is sleeping with temple prostitutes to to worship a god. Totally different, right? There's One has the idea of countless gods, like a god for everything, and the other one's like, there is only one god. So the way that you would talk to these people would be different. The things that they would talk about, though, were always the same. That God is holy and awesome, that Jesus has come, God in the flesh, that he died on the cross, he rose from the dead, he's gone to the Father, and we are to believe in him. He is our Savior, by grace through faith. Verse 11. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. The Judaizers, those who were teaching that that salvation comes by faith in Jesus and the law, they claimed Paul was a phony apostle and he was watering down the gospel. But in fact, they were watering the gospel because they were adding to it the works of men. And it wasn't Peter who had to correct Paul, but Paul says, I had to correct Peter. Not in doctrine, but in conduct, because he was giving the wrong message by how he was living. When Peter came to Antioch, Paul confronted him about his hypocrisy. Peter was a Jew. And like many Jews, belief in Jesus did not cause them to automatically drop the law like it was hot. Okay, they, it wasn't like, oh, as Gentiles, we we recognize the the great benefit of not being under the weight of the law. Right? We have liberty in Christ. We have freedom to serve him. It's not just about what we do or don't do. But you remember Peter and all the disciples, they followed Jesus who kept the law. Jesus fulfilled the law in every point. And so they conducted themselves with Christ and their whole life in one way. Now, when Jesus leaves the earth, it didn't just go, oh, well, now that Jesus is gone, we don't have to keep any of that. No, this is cultural. This was part of their daily religious observance and a way that they honored God. So they didn't just stop. As alluded to previously in Joppa, it says Peter was hungry. He saw a vision. God lowers this sheet in front of him. And it's filled with all kinds of uh, animals that are unclean. And God said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. What was Peter? Oh, Lord, I'm so, I'm so, like now that we're free from the law, I'm happy to satisfy my hunger with these previously unclean animals. He's like, no way, God. Not so, Lord. I have never eaten anything unclean. And I'm not about to start now. Right? No. And then the voice said, What God has cleansed, you shall not call common or unclean. And this happened three times. Now, corresponding, while he's like thinking about it, there's a knock at the door, and there's Gentiles outside. And the Holy Spirit says, go with these men. So they brought them in, spent the night, ate together, and then went to Cornelius' house. And Peter's like, you know, I'm out of my depth here. You know that it's not really 
kosher for me to be hanging with the Gentiles. And, and he begins to talk about the gospel and to share it. And while he's speaking, the Holy Spirit falls upon them. They start speaking in tongues like the, like the Jews did on the day of Pentecost. And Peter's like, hey, these people should be baptized. Who can for- forbid water from these who have received the Holy Spirit just like we did? And it was like, wow, God's accepted the Gentiles. He's cleansed them just like he's cleansed us. And it was like a eureka moment, a watershed moment in the church. Now, it wasn't just eating with Gentiles, but eating Gentile food. Peter was eating Gentile food. It wasn't prepared in the proper way. He was eating perhaps pork or food that was not acceptable under the law. Now, there was an occasion in Antioch. Peter was sitting at the table with the Gentiles. He was eating Gentile food. But when people sent from James and Jerusalem came, Peter's like, oh, they're not going to approve of this. They won't understand this. And so he distanced himself and sat at another table with those Jews. Barnabas fell into it as well. And other Jews that were there, oh, you know, we don't want to offend them. And so they segregated themselves apart from the Gentiles that they had had fellowship with. And verse 12, it says, when they came, he withdrew and separated themselves, fearing those who were of the circumcision. So did Peter stop eating pork because he had a conviction before God and he feared God? No, it was because he feared men. He was afraid of what they would say. He was afraid of what they would think. He didn't want to offend. And so fearing them, he changed his behavior. You guys have been there. We know what it feels like to be concerned about what others think. We're not shuddering, thinking about, you know, in fear. But we don't want to under, we don't want to offend people. But it was hypocrisy that sent a message that opposed the gospel that God has made Jews and Gentiles one in Christ and that they are cleansed before him. So what he did opposed the gospel. Verse 14, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Paul publicly confronted Peter in front of everyone because what he had, what he did was seen and understood by everyone. You're not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel. It was acceptable before God for Peter to eat with Jews or Gentiles and to eat their food. Why put pressure on Gentiles to live as Jews? When you have received Christ through faith, You realize that it's not by the law that you're saved, but by faith in Jesus. So why are you putting that pressure on the Gentiles? Peter knew there was no way of salvation through keeping the ordinances. But he changed his behavior to give the appearance that he was keeping the law so that he would not offend those Jews. So he, Barnabas and others, they catered to the legalistic leanings of those Jews from Jerusalem, 
And his fear of other men led to compromise and hypocrisy. His actions denied the gospel. It's a sobering thing that not only our words, but our lifestyle can present a message that opposes the truth of the gospel. It sends the wrong message. Luther said this, Peter did not say so, but his example said quite plainly that the observance of the law must be added to faith in Christ if men are to be saved. From Peter's example, the Gentiles could not help but draw the conclusion that the law was necessary unto salvation. As a Jew, Peter knew very well the immense weight of the law, that it was just impossible to keep it perfectly. He knew that justification never came through the works of the law, but only by faith. And this is really the central point of the entire letter to the Galatians. The term justified, it's used here for the first time, which is a legal term meaning to declare righteous. It's the opposite of to condemn. And being justified is much more than being just declared not guilty, like we would in a court of law. You're accused of a crime. You go and they say not guilty. But in this case, it's righteousness. God's righteousness. So it's not only having your sin expunged, but being declared righteous, just like God is righteous, as righteous as God, because righteous is righteous. There's no kind of righteous. It's like holy. You're holy. You're not just kind of holy. It's all or nothing. So you're either righteous or not, and no one's righteous by the law. And he says, no man is justified by the works of the law. No amount of effort could make a man clean before God because you can keep all the, all the feasts. You can tithe, you can wash your hands, you can eat kosher, but inevitably you would be deemed unclean for something. And if you break one law, you've broken it all forever. Eventually everyone would become unclean. If you are on your period as a woman, you are unclean. If you have sexual intercourse, you are unclean until you wash and go through the right thing. So, I mean, what chance do you have? If you get sick, if you touch a dead body, if you touch an item that an unclean person touched, you're unclean under the law. Good luck! And you have to do this your entire life. And you can't eat the the wrong food if it's prepared, uh, even if it's right food prepared in the wrong way. Unclean. It's like... Wow. Now, cleanness and uncleanness, that was defined in the law, but the law never promised righteousness. No promise of righteousness through the law. You could be clean, you could be sanctified, but you could never be righteous because only God is righteous. You can't be righteous. The law never offered you righteousness. So by keeping it, you are not righteous. Full stop. The only way that you can be righteous and justified is through faith in Jesus Christ and the gospel. That's it. That's your only hope. Paul continues, verse 17. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. I'm sure Jews wrestled with questions like, how can eating pork be a sin under the law, but if I trust in Jesus, now it's no longer a sin? How does that work? So they're wrestling with this, because they'd always 
seen that as wrong. This is wrong to do that. To Jews, the idea, having lived under the law, the idea of removing the law would make people lawless. It would increase people's sin. Like, that's a sin, that's a sin, that's a sin, that's a sin. And they're doing it all, and they're not sinners. (laughs) It was just hard for them to grasp. And Paul says, not so. Trust in Jesus does not make you a sinner because Jesus is righteous and brings righteousness. So to say that Jesus has come and people who are following him are doing these things, Jesus is not a minister of sin. He's not making people more sinful. That would be wrong. Of course not. He's righteous and holy. Christ did not save us from sin to embolden us to sin. Right? That's why he died on the cross. No man was ever justified by the law, and by trying to keep the law, no one is deemed righteous. What they failed to take into account is that whatever is not a faith is sin. The Jews, they believed the law when God said, this animal's unclean, this animal's unclean, this animal's clean. They had to trust God, right? Because there's a whole list of animals, and some of them, you're like, they eat it, seems good, but this is an unclean thing for me. So I won't. So there was that faith involved. I trust God's word, and therefore I am going to uh, change my eating habits based upon his word. They mistakenly thought if something was deemed unclean under the law, it was inherently sinful. There was something bad about it. But that's not the case. God gave them his righteous ordinances. Not because there's a problem with eating pork or not eating pork. Not a problem with either. It was obedience to him that was the issue. Paul affirmed in Romans 14, 14, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So you can have a personal conviction that something is unclean for you. You don't eat this particular thing. And we make that choice based upon our health, right? We can make that choice based upon our health. Like this is has a lot of sugar and it's not great for me, so I'm not going to eat that. And we can also say this could potentially stumble a brother or a sister. So I'm not going to drink that. I'm not going to eat that in this situation. But not to change our behavior so that we act a certain way that's not true. To claim the gospel leads people to sin because they're not keeping the law is to falsely accuse Jesus of being a minister of sin when he's actually our righteousness. Verse 18, he says, an attempt to reestablish the law as a measure of righteousness is sinful. To demand others keep the law is sin. So those who were saying you've got to keep the law, they're sinning, not the people who don't keep the law. He said, for I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. The law demanded death for everyone who broke it. Death. We were reading last night. It said like there, there there were two guys having a fight in the camp. This was, I think it was in was it Leviticus, yeah. And it's like one of them, while they were fighting, cursed and used the Lord's name. And so they put him in a little holding cell and they said, what should we do, God? And God says, everyone who heard him curse, they put their hand on his head and then the whole congregation stoning with stones so he die. Whoa, for cursing one time. And those who heard it, They had to administer that. That would 
make an indelible impression upon you. That that breaking of the law is serious. It is a mortal sin. There was no forgiveness except by the shedding of blood. The blood of an animal needed to be shed or the blood of that uh, sinner needed to be shed. Jesus did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. He kept the law, and he was crucified as a lamb without blemish and without spot for the sins of the world. The requirements of the law were nailed to the cross with Christ, and his resurrection proved his power over sin and death. Paul affirmed that Christians are dead to the law through the law. So the law was fulfilled. And now you're dead to the law. And so when dead to the law, the law has no grip on you anymore. You can't be um, required to keep the law when you're dead. Right? They're like, hey, that guy, he's not, he's breaking the law. He's not saying the right thing at the right time. He's not eating the right food. Well, he's dead. Like, the law doesn't have any power over that guy. So the, you're dead to the law because the law has been fulfilled. And having been crucified with Christ, it's like by faith, we were crucified on Calvary with Jesus because he is our substitute. He died in our place. So he has died for you. So now you're not under any obligation to keep the law at all. The law demanded our blood, but Jesus' blood was shed so we can be clean. The Holy Spirit enters our hearts, not to live on the plane of I do this, I don't do that, but a far higher plane of being led by God and God in us, living his life through us. That is to govern us. And so we will love others. There will be a change. Galatians verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. So he says, I have been crucified with Christ. The reality was not only Jesus had died for Paul, but Jesus was living in Paul. And this is like, like whoa, this is like holy ground to consider and really uh, earth-shattering truth for us. And you say, well, how can this be? Paul lived a resurrected life as a new creation in Jesus because he had faith in God who loved him and gave himself for him. And that's why communion and baptism are significant things that we do as believers in obedience to Christ because they, re they affirm the reality that we have partaken of Christ through his death and his resurrection. It's not because we receive communion that we are saved or because we're baptized that we're saved, but because what Jesus has done and we believe in him. The believers in returning to the law, they laid aside the grace of God and they made the sacrifice of Jesus of no effect. They were not receiving the benefits of Christ's death and his resurrection or his new life in them because they were placing themselves under bondage to the law. So the implications of a return to the law, it's a massive mistake. 
It undercuts salvation, forgiveness, the Holy Spirit, the power of God in you. So having believed in Christ by faith, Jesus lives his life through us. You guys ever read the the book uh, by Major W. Ian Thomas called The Saving Life of Christ? It's a really cool book. But this is what he says. And it's it's such a challenge. It's such a good exhortation. If you will but trust Christ, not only for the death he died in order to redeem you, but also in the life that he lives and waits to live through you. The very next step you take will be a step taken in the very energy and power of God himself. You will have become totally dependent upon the life of Christ within you, and never before will you have been so independent so emancipated from the pressure of your circumstances, so released at last from that self-distrust which has made you at one moment an arrogant, loudmouthed braggart and the next moment the victim of your own self-pity and either way, always in bondage to the fear of other men's opinions. So you trust that Jesus Christ died for you, but do you trust his life to be lived out in you? That is powerful to consider. At presentation day at Able School, uh, the principal encouraged the students not to compare themselves with others, but to be the best version of yourself possible. You know, and it's like, okay, you only have so much to work with, but let's be the best we can with what we have, that sort of feeling. But Jesus did far more than this. Through faith, Jesus lives in us. It's not a better version of you. Now that you're a Christian, it has nothing to do with you. It's Jesus in you. Would you agree that there's people who used to annoy you, but now you love them? That's not you. That's Jesus in you. His love is being manifested in your life in a practical way. There's humility and meekness in your life where there used to be pride and arrogance. And it's really neat when the Lord pulls back the veil and we say, you know, I would have reacted very differently 10 years ago, 5 years ago, a year ago, a week ago. I would have acted very differently. And it's not because you've been reading your Bible or going to Bible studies or prayer meetings. It's because Jesus is living in you. That's why. So it's not because of your maturity. It's not because of your growth. It's Jesus in you. It's like, how awesome is that? That Jesus lives in me. And I see the glimpse here and there, but I want it to be more where Jesus has that freedom because I am surrendered to him in faith. I just trust him. I believe him. And so Jesus lives through me because he's already living in me. Give him that opportunity. We believe Jesus died on the cross for us. Trust Jesus to live his life in you like he's promised. So the question is, have you set aside the grace of God, carrying the burden of trying to please men rather than living to please God? And if we're led by the Spirit, we won't go into sin. Because the fruit of the Spirit, it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, meekness, self-control against there is no law. It's like, don't be loving to that person. Don't be merciful to him. No. There's no law against that. It's not about being a better you. It's Jesus in you. We can frustrate the grace of God 
by putting ourselves under a burden to please men or to even please ourselves. And thus it makes the sacrifice of Christ in vain. Many believe in Jesus, but they have yet received the dynamic of the Holy Spirit, the benefit of this practically in their life. And we need to believe him and trust him. Paul had learned the secret of contentment through faith in Jesus, no matter the circumstance. And man, there's some circumstances that do rob us of joy, don't they? They rob us of peace. But it's not the situation that's robbing us of anything. We really rob ourselves when we don't believe what God has said, when we don't trust. Paul could do righteously in rejoicing, honoring, and obeying God because Jesus is righteous and lived in him. That's how he was able to do it. He's like, it's not me, guys. It's Jesus in me. And he wrote in Philippians 4, 12 and 13, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This, this verse should not pump us up. I'm like, yeah, we can do it. But we should not feel self-sufficient but Christ-dependent. It's he who does it. It's he that works in us. We don't have to be in bondage to legalism. We don't have to be enslaved by the opinions of others. Jesus has set us free to be free to live in us. And praise the Lord for the gospel, how it it just brings Jesus to live in us. And may he do so abundantly, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this truth that Jesus has come to seek and to save those who are lost and that through the gospel we are saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. Lord, may we walk in this gift. May we relish it. May we rejoice in it. And thank you, Lord, that Jesus lives in us. It's not works of righteousness which we have done, but according to your mercy, you have saved us. You have washed us clean. You have made us righteous. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for giving us such an indescribable gift of righteousness and acceptance and your presence and a heart to will and to do of your good pleasure. Thank you, Lord, that everything we have, even our faith, is a gift from you. We are so undeserving, Lord, so forgetful, so full of our own thoughts. I pray, Lord, that you would just release those who are in burden, or who are burdened this morning, those who have uh, uh, just the, I guess, the tendrils of, of legalism, just grabbing at them, Lord. We want to be set apart for you and you alone. We love you, Father. We thank you for Jesus and the gospel. We thank you that for pictures of guys like Titus that you saved from a pagan uh, environment. And Lord, we need you. Help us to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.